Amazing God, thank you that you are compassionate. You're merciful and gracious, that your love never ends. Father, I pray that you touch our hearts afresh through the power of your word this morning. Teach us something that helps us to cling to you more fully, to stop turning away from you, to open our hearts more completely, to allow you to be the one who enfolds us in your wings. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. They were on a flight from Salt Lake City to Honolulu. And as they were flying along, he had kind of drifted off when suddenly his daughter was awakening him and said, Hey, uh, you need to, to go. They're, they're asking for a doctor. So Dr. Glenn got up and he walked down the aisle and said, well, I'm, I'm a physician. Where, do, where is help needed? And they said, Oh, we're so glad that you're here. Come to the bathroom. And when he got to the bathroom, he discovered something. A girl by the name of Lavi had had a baby. And, and Lavi didn't know that she was pregnant. Now, having experienced what my wife goes through when she's pregnant, I cannot comprehend that you don't understand that you're pregnant. But apparently the doctor actually said that this happens in one in 400 pregnancies. So it's not all that rare. But it is really rare to have that baby on an airplane. She went to the, the, the laboratory, and as she went in the laboratory, she was experiencing some severe symptoms when suddenly she had the presence of mind to grab the baby before she passed. She called for help, and then she passed out. So the doctor rushed over and began to, to help her, and lo and behold, on the airplane, there were three NICU nurses. Three NICU nurses. This happened just five, six days ago on a flight from Salt Lake City to Honolulu. They still had three hours left in this flight. The baby was 29 weeks old. And here's the thing about babies. Here's the thing about embryos. They don't survive well outside of the womb. There's something special about a womb that's made to, to comfort, to provide for the growth of, to enable a baby to survive that is really hard to replicate in the outside cold world. But they're on the airplane. Thankfully, they have oxygen in the airplane, so they're able to get oxygen to the baby. They were able to take shoelaces off of one of the NICU nurse's shoes and to tie that around the umbilical cord, to tie off the umbilical cord. They were able to take uh, towels and blankets and put hot water bottles in them in order to put them around the baby because I can tell you this, having a ba babies that were burn, born early, you have to watch out for them getting cold. And they had to keep the baby warm, and that baby survived, was stabilized, and mom was stabilized on that airplane for three hours. There's something special about moms. Thank you to those of you who have gone through that process of allowing God to knit in you a new life, because there's something about that you can do that... A guy simply cannot do. I do not have the capacity to provide that type of environment for a baby. There's something beautiful about the womb. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23, and here we pick up the story of Jesus and his incredible compassion for the people of Israel. Now, we've been going through a series on the three angels' messages, and I was standing in the kitchen this past week when my mother-in-law is like, so you're talking about Mother's Day this week, right? said, yeah, of course I am. <laughs> I was planning to talk about the wrath of God, but let's talk about Mother's Day. <laughs> and then I realized something, that just like God's, God's love 
is revealed in his wrath, we also find an important element of his compassion in his wrath. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, Jesus has just unleashed a a set of statements towards the Pharisees that indicted them for all of their ways of mistreating people around them and of trying to pretend that they were righteous on the outside when inside they weren't stirred with the love of God. Matthew chapter 27. Oh, here's some pictures. I'm sorry, I forgot these pictures. Here, here's baby, the baby with the, the oxygen on here. And here's Dr. Glenn, who was on that flight with Lavi. And here are the three NICU nurses who helped to stabilize that baby. I am so thank you, thankful for NICU nurses. I mean, it's an incredible thing. They, they now say 24 weeks is the place where viability happens for a baby. But before Nick used, that was not the reality. A baby could not survive at just 24 weeks of pregnancy. I'm thankful Jewel isn't here today, but I'm thankful that she watched over Livy when she had to be in the NICU for five days. So we're thankful for technology today that enables the replication of womb-like environments to enable a baby to survive, even on an airplane. Thankfully, this baby survived. But in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus responds after pronouncing the woes upon the Pharisees, he ends with this incredibly beautiful statement. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. You can hear in that first phrase, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That that heartache, that being grieved that we talked about always accompanies his anger like we saw in the story last week. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Then it goes on to say this, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Have you seen this happen before? I mean, it's an amazing reality what happens with a hen. Here's a hen with its chicks being faced by a a mildly dangerous dog, apparently. Um, But still, you can watch what happens to these baby chicks as they begin to find shelter under the wings of... A mother hen. It's a beautiful reality that Jesus said, this is what I want to do for you. I want for you to be sheltered under my wings. I just want you to stay there. To let me care for you. But they didn't want the type of shelter that he provided. You see, Jesus revealed that the ultimate power in the universe is love. But they wanted the sword. They wanted a conquering Messiah, one who would destroy their enemies. Jesus, he's the one who comes and says, oh yeah, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry his burden for a mile, carry it too. How weak is that? We're supposed to overthrow the the Romans and he's telling us to go along with their authority to even carry their burden for two miles. He's the one who said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. This wasn't the type of of protection that they wanted because they didn't recognize the infinite power of love. Jesus said, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But let's look again at that first phrase. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. You see, in Jesus' uh, message that he's just given to the Pharisees, the woes that are pronounced upon them, he's revealed two things. One, 
The Pharisees are hypocritical. They don't recognize that inside they desperately need a savior. They think that they have it all put together. You know, you and I don't want, really want to be sheltered under somebody's wings if we think that we can handle life. And to be honest, for America, it's pretty easy to get complacent, to feel like we can handle life. We've got freedom. We've got enough resources to get by. We're not struggling. But when you look around and you see what the world is really like and what it's headed towards, when you see what's happening in India and you see the suffering that's going on there, you recognize the fact that we desperately need to be sheltered under the wings of an amazing God. But the second thing that you notice about what Jesus reveals in talking about the Pharisees as he goes through talking about them is the fact that they have rejected the prophets over and over, even though they claim to follow him. And he says, this is in verse 23, he says, you tithe the the mint and the cumin and the anise. You take every tenth leaf off of the plant so that you can be righteous. But you neglect the weightier things in the law, mercy and justice, the love of God. You're not loving the people around you. Earlier in the chapter, he says, you're devouring widows' houses. I've placed you in religious authority so that you could be there for those that are outcasts. You could be there for those who are weak. But instead, you're using your authority to enrich yourself and to oppress those who are in need. And so Jesus, at the end, he ends with this statement, you're the ones that kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. And, and we see this happening very clearly back in Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 15. It says, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles is actually in the place where our Bibles has Malachi. So oftentimes when a Hebrew is reading the Hebrew Bible, they're going to say, Okay, so Malachi, this is getting, and this is the last, I believe, last chapter of Second Chronicles. This is the end of the Hebrew Bible. And he's saying, the Lord God of, the, of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. How does God reveal his compassion? What does this say? What does he do in order to reveal his compassion? He sends prophets. He sends messengers. He sends messages saying, hey, wake up. Look, here's what's going on. You need to recognize the fact that sin is harmful to your life and to the relationships that you're in. Notice what it goes on to say, though. Verse 16. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. You see, the the prophets have come as a remedy. They've come as, as, as providing the path of healing. But they mocked them. They turned away from them. And, and it's always easy to point to, why did that generation do it? Why did that generation do it? And not to recognize how we may be doing that in our own generation. Neglecting the one remedy that really matters. Therefore, now notice what his wrath looks like. It says his wrath was unleashed upon them after he, in compassion, sends them prophets. This is what his wrath looks like. Therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, that was Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary. So who's doing the killing here? Who's doing the killing here? Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary. Who's doing the killing here? 
the king of the Chaldeans. God is giving them over as they have chosen other gods. They've chosen to worship the gods of the Babylonians. He's giving them over as they have chosen to live by the sword. They are dying by the sword. And it had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And this was devastating for the Jews because they lived in a time period where if you were defeated in battle, that was because your God was weaker than the gods of those who were coming after you. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes, Daniel chapter 1 tells us that he takes the articles from the temple and he puts them into the house of his God. Saying, my God is the one who just overcame Yahweh. Yahweh is weak. He can't handle a battle. And those who escaped from the edge of the sword were carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his son until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So here, it gives us the picture that, that they were sent into captivity because they had neglected something. They neglected to give the land its rest. They neglected the, the opportunities that took place with helping out their neighbors during the time of that sabbatical year. And because of that, God said he gave them over to experience, so that the land could have its rest for 70 years. And some say that there was 490 years before that in which the land didn't have its rest and and so this is, is to, to symbolically 70 years. So there's 70 Sabbath years that are taking place for the land to finally rest. But, but who were the prophets who were coming right at this time period that Second Chronicles is talking about? Well, it, it talked about there the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 19, look at what Jeremiah was prophesying to them. Look at what he's saying. Pay close attention to this. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people. The fruit of their own thoughts. Uh, what is the calamity coming from? What, where is it birthed at? What, what is it fruit of? Their thoughts. Uh, this is the way they wanted to live. They wanted to live by the sword and they die by the sword. They wanted to worship the God of Babylon and so God gave them over to the ba- God of Babylon. They chose and God gave them what they chose. The fruit of their own thoughts. Now, uh, Jeremiah goes on to describe a little bit more of what he was pleading with the people to experience. In Jeremiah chapter, uh, well, this goes on in verse 19. says, because they have not heeded my words nor my law, but rejected it. Chapter 7 says it this way. This is what Jeremiah was told to go into the court and to prophesy to the people. This is the type of message that Jeremiah was to give to them that they turned their back on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Don't just think, hey, I go to the temple and that's good enough. I have the, 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 I've offered sacrifices and that's good enough. This, there's this covering over my life that's good. Don't keep it at this surface level that's, that's just about what you believe rather than actually how I change what you do. So he goes on to say in verse 
uh, continues and says this, for, you thir- for if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, and then he goes on to describe what that looks like. Notice what he describes here. If you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor. If you pursue justice to make sure that, that there is justice happening between neighbors. And he goes on to say this. If you do not oppress the stranger. Who's that? The Hebrew word is ger, foreigner. The one who, who wasn't born among you. The one who looks differently. If you make sure that you're watching out for them. If you read the Bible really carefully, extra concern is to be placed to make sure that those who weren't born among us, those who look different than us, are being treated in the exact same way that we are. And if we don't do that, we aren't listening to the prophets. The fatherless, those who don't have the same opportunities that we have. And the widow. The widow didn't have property rights, didn't have the opportunities that others had. And do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt. Then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. I will spread my wings over you if you act with this type of love on a horizontal level. Again and again and again, you'll find that this is what the prophets are pleading with God's people about. And they turn their back on it time and time again. And the question is, do we turn our backs on that too? We know what we believe. Does it translate into how the Holy Spirit inspires us to live? Is it good news that you are a Seventh-day Adventist or that you are a Christian? Is that good news to the people around you? Does it make their lives better? Are they glad that they have you as a neighbor? Because they know that you'll treat them with justice. They know that you'll watch out for them. They know that if they're pushed down, you'll you'll pick them up. How do my neighbors feel? Do they know anything besides the fact that I get up on Saturday mornings and I come early to church dressed a little bit nicer than I am during the week? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted, notice what it says here, to gather your children together. You see, Jesus isn't just talking about his protecting, overshadowing care for them, but he's wanting to bring us together. And that's why he could summarize the law in Matthew 7 and verse 12 to say, do unto others as you would have others do unto you, and thus fulfill the law and the prophets. That's what it's all about. If you love those who you see, then you're going to love me. Our horizontal relationships are impacted by our righteousness or by our sin. By accepting this love that God wants to implant in us or by choosing to walk in our own selfish ways. I mean, just think about it practically. If sin is selfishness, that's, that's to take rather than to give, to be focused on me and mine. That impacts my relationship with my wife. I wouldn't have uh, most of the, 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 any challenges that Leah and I face where we might disagree about something if it weren't for my own selfishness. What about with our children? What about with our boss? What about with our coworkers? What about with the people around us? God is concerned with our horizontal relationships. And that's why he's passionate about our sin and wanting to take care of that in our lives. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He wanted to help them and they didn't want that type of relationship. They didn't want a God who told them to love their enemies. They didn't want a God who told them to go to the Samaritans. A God who told them to to make sure that they watched out for all people. They didn't want Jesus. Jesus. 
So they crucified him. Verse 37 continues, but you were not willing. You're not willing to accept what my kingdom is all about. See, your house is left to you desolate. How does God respond when we choose our own course? Well, Jesus reveals again and again, your house is left desolate to you. I'm going to leave you in the mess that you're choosing. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to leave you to your own devices. And it's not going to be very pretty. In fact, this is what led Jesus as he was on his way to Jerusalem a few chapters earlier. He's on his way and they're, they're singing his praises. The kids are there. with the. Uh, my girls love this story about the triumphal entry as they're putting out the, uh, the coats for him to ride the donkey over, and they're waving palm branches, and they're singing Hosanna, and they always want us to sing the Hosanna song. And Donna Jan taught us a new Hosanna song. They love to sing Hosannas about Jesus. But something happened as Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they crest the Mount of Olivet. And as they look out over the city of Jerusalem, there's the beautiful temple shining brightly, and everybody is So excited, the moment has come. Jesus is going to finally go and take rulership in the temple. But what did Jesus do in that moment? He wept. He started to cry. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you knew what made for your peace. But there's going to come a day when your enemies are going to surround you. They're going to put up embankments around you. The fact is that you're going to be destroyed and not one stone will be left upon another. You see, Jesus was trying to teach them that if they didn't fix their horizontal relationships by coming into relationship with Him, a transforming relationship with Him, that the fact was that they were going to destroy themselves. And this is exactly what happens in Jewish history. If you follow on from 27 AD when Jesus is crucified, you go forward until 70 AD and you find the destruction of Jerusalem. How did the destruction of Jerusalem happen? It's because they continued to look for a Messiah who would deliver them by the sword. They were determined that they were going to overthrow the nations around them with violence. They were going to overthrow Rome with violence. And it was that stubbornness that led them to finally begin to fight against Rome. In 66 AD, it was the first Jewish revolt. And in that revolt, they began to rise up against the Romans to cast them out of Jerusalem. And they finally freed Jerusalem like they'd been wanting to do. So Rome sent a general and went to to Jerusalem and he began to attack the city. And he was even able to breach the walls when something happened. Suddenly, the Roman army withdrew, and Roman historians don't know today exactly why it was that the Roman armies withdrew. And here's the beautiful thing that I want you to take away today. You might think, well, has God just left me? Maybe his presence is gone. God reveals himself through his prophets. He reveals himself through his word. And if you just keep following, there is a remedy if you're willing to accept it. No matter how far you've gone, no matter where you are today, Because in that very siege of Jerusalem, there were Christians living in Jerusalem. But they remembered what Jesus, the great prophet, the King of Kings, had told them. He had said in Matthew 24 that when this takes place, and actually in in Luke also, he, he specifies more clearly, when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, 
then you need to retreat. Well, how are they going to retreat? It was in that moment of rest when finally they had an opening that they retreated and they were, and he, it said explicitly, Jesus said, flee to the mountains. And they were able to go to Perea where not a Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. But sadly, the majority of the Jews didn't listen to what Jesus had to say. And they chose to stay and to fight. But here's the problem. Their horizontal relationships weren't so good. They didn't get along. In fact, there were three different leaders of revolts who were there in the city of Jerusalem when after the three, year, three years of war, Titus came back with his army to finally ransack Jerusalem. And in AD 70, when they came to attack Jerusalem, Jerusalem was killing itself inside the walls. There were different parts of the city that were captured by uh, different parts of the Jewish uh, uh, revolt leaders. There were different ones, and they were fighting amongst themselves, fighting back and forth until the place where uh, some estimate that 100,000 people were killed. They're in fighting. Before you even have the Romans breaking into the city, they were killing themselves. And this is what sin does. It destroys. It creates disharmony. It wrecks our lives. It wrecks our relationships. Desire of Ages, page 577, talking about Jesus as he's there looking over Jerusalem, weeping. This is what it says about it, page 577. It says, Christ came to save Jerusalem with her children, but Pharisaical pride, hypocrisy, jealousy, and malice had prevented him from accomplishing his purpose. Jesus knew the terrible retribution which would be visited upon the doomed city. Where did the retribution come from? Where did it come from? It came from themselves. What they had result, what their sin resulted in. As James chapter 1 says, sin when it is fully, uh, fully ripened produces death. He saw Jerusalem encompassed with armies, the besieged inhabitants driven to starvation and death. Mothers feeding upon the dead bodies of their own children. And both parents and children snatching the last morsel of food from one another. Natural affection being destroyed by the gnawing pangs of hunger. He saw that the stubbornness of the Jews, as evinced in their rejection of his salvation, would also lead them to refuse submission to the invading armies. You know, we know so much about this history of what took place in the destruction of Jerusalem because of a guy named Josephus. And Josephus wrote uh, volumes about what took place. That's, it's pretty wild. He says that a million people died in this. Now, some people don't fully trust all that Josephus said, but we know this, that Josephus was actually one who went to try to plead with the Jews to make peace with the Romans. And they wouldn't do it. And so they fought to the death because they were operating under a different kingdom, a kingdom of authority over rather than of service to, a a kingdom based on selfishness and self-preservation rather than based on self-sacrificing love. And it destroyed them. And that is a picture of what's going to take place on this planet. If we seek to preserve ourselves, if we look out for ourselves trying to figure out how we're going to make it, we're not going to make it. I hate to break it to you. You know, The fruit of their own thoughts came to take place on those who were living in Jerusalem. And it reminds me of how Jesus wanted to shelter his people under his wings. And another picture of that that's helped me to to grasp it just a little bit more over the past few weeks is in the Cincinnati Zoo. 
The Cincinnati Zoo has a wallaby that one day they went and they looked at the wallaby's pouch, and there inside of it was little tiny Zip. He didn't have a name at first, but they let the public actually name him Zip. There's baby Zip. Now, you see Zip is poking his head out of the pouch. That pouch is an amazing environment for a wallaby to grow. He doesn't even have hair yet. He's this tiny little wallaby who doesn't belong outside of the pouch, but you can see him, and there's videos of it. It's like he's, he's thinking, maybe I should just get out of this pouch. Maybe I just need to, to crawl out of here, and I'll be better. Maybe I'll find a whole new world out there. So often, our own thoughts are looking for a way out, looking for another way than what the prophets have revealed to us time and time again about selfless love being the only way. Isaiah chapter 49 describes God's compassion and it compares it to a mother's womb. This word that we saw earlier in the video from Bible Project on compassion, that that word compassion that's the first that's used to describe the character of God in Exodus 34 and verse 6, which Exodus 34 verse 6 is one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible because it's the definitive uh, definition. It's where God describes what his character is like to his people for the first time. And so here, using that word compassion, it says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? And I'm tempted to say no. I have an amazing mother. I've watched an amazing mother closely over the last two years and three months. I don't think that a mother could ever forget her nursing child. But you know, I googled. I was, I was thinking, okay, I need like some good stories of heroic mothers and, and of inspiring mother's stories. And so uh, I was just looking for mother stories. And you know how many stories there are? Our news is horrific. Because story after story is there about mothers that killed their children. I think it's a really rare thing, but unfortunately it's the type of thing that our news magnifies. So apparently a mother can forget its nursing child. Now kids, don't worry. You have amazing moms. I want you to know that your, your moms aren't like that. But notice what God goes on to say. Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. Even a mom with her womb that's perfect for, for allowing that baby to grow, they might forget about their baby, but I won't forget you. I'll never, never give up on you. As long as you're willing to come, my arms are open wide. And in the end, it's only going to be those who have hardened their hearts to the place where they will not come, who will not be able to experience his shepherding, his compassionate love. See, I have inscribed you, it goes on to say, on the palms of my hands. Who did Jesus die for? John 3.16 tells us it was for the whole world. Every person is inscribed on his hands. Every person in those nail prints on his hands, he will never, never, never give up on you. The question is, will you give up on him? Will you turn from him? Will you be hardened in your sin? Will you turn away from his gift of life? He'll never, never stop offering compassion to you. Your walls are continually before me, he goes on to say. He's talking specifically about Jerusalem. I want desperately to help Jerusalem. But eventually he has to let them go to their own destruction, which they have chosen. The upward look of devotional book, page 180, says it this way. It's beautiful. It says, The love of Jesus is something expressed more tender than the love of a mother for her child. The most tender love we know is that of a mother for her child, but the love of Jesus exceeds this. (laughs) This Mother's Day, as we think about the reality of that ideal mother, 
And, and I acknowledge that maybe some of you today didn't have an ideal mother. And if that's the case, maybe this isn't a great thing to think about. But the reality is that God has that perfect compassion of what a perfect mother should be like. And yet it's greater than that. The love of Jesus exceeds this. She may change in her affection. Mothers may become unkind. But Jesus never, never will become unmindful or unkind or cruel to his children. He will never give up on you. You can count on that. Then never, never will we show distrust or, and want of faith. So strong is his love, check this out, that it controls all the affections of his nature and he employs all his vast resources to do his people good. Are you willing to rest under the shadow of his wings? Are you willing to trust in his racham, his compassion for you? To allow yourself to thrive under the never-failing love of Jesus? And not only that, are you willing for that same compassion to stir in you? The last verses we'll look at, Matthew chapter 9, Jesus revealed a compassion that moved him to his core. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 to 38. It says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. It it, it moved him from the inside out. It moved him to want to act in their behalf to help them out. Then it goes on to say, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd." When he saw what the people were going through, he desperately wanted to step in and help them. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We need to pray for laborers for the harvest, and we need to pray that God will send us as laborers. What type of laborers? Laborers who are moved with compassion for the weary, for the scattered, for those who are in desperate need of help in any area in their life. Because this is what the prophets have called us to time and time again. Agnes grew up in a home where tragedy struck at eight years of age. At just the young age of eight, her father died. And this led her to become closer to her mother than she had ever become before And in their neighborhood, in Agnes' little neighborhood, there was a number of people who were poorer than them. Even though they weren't a wealthy family and she was the daughter of a widow now, their family still didn't had more than other people. And this is what her mom taught her. Although by no means wealthy, Drana, that's Agnes' mom, extended an open invitation to the city's destitute to dine with her family. This is what she said to little Agnes. My child, never eat a single mouthful unless you are sharing it with others. Isn't that compassion? Don't, don't eat without thinking about the people that are hungry out there. Without thinking about how you might be able to share something, how you can give a little bit more, how you could eat something a little less expensive so you can share just a little bit more with somebody out there. There are people that are suffering. When Agnes asked who the people eating with them were, her mother uniformly responded, some of them are our relations, but all of them are our people. (laughs) These are my people. (laughs) And they're coming to dinner. They're going to eat with us. As Agnes grew up, this picture of what God is like motivated her to want to give her life in ministry. And so she actually went off and she began to, in her church, devote herself to ministry. And eventually this sent her off to India. And in India, for 17 years, she was a teacher in Calcutta. 
And in Calcutta, as she was a teacher there for 17 years, she ministered to these poor families who would come to school. And she thought that by education, she could raise their level and hopefully help them out of poverty. But eventually, she felt God placing his hand on her and telling her, no, I want you to do something more. I want you to actually enter into their homes. I want you to come close to them. I want you to provide food for them, clothing for them. I want you to go to the lepers. I want you to go to the people that are hurting in the slums of Calcutta. If you've ever been there, it's incredible. I've seen pictures my dad brought back from there of trash just everywhere. It's just a miserable place to live. And here we are enjoying our good life here in America. She couldn't handle that. And this young woman dedicated the rest of her life to go and make sure that she could ease every bit of suffering that she found. She later took on a name that you might recognize, Mother Teresa. How appropriate to have the name Mother, to be filled with compassion for those who are poor, for those who are weak, for those who are in need. She's not a perfect person. She didn't have a perfect understanding of who God is, but she lived for loving people. That's what we're called to. And I would wager that it would be better for you and I to have her theology and to love people than to have our theology and to not love people. And I'm not going to say that just based upon my feelings, but based upon what I see happening with the Pharisees. As Jesus said, you're Sabbath keeping. You expect the Messiah. You don't eat unclean meats. You're following all these things. but I wanted to gather you. I wanted to bring you together and you just couldn't handle what my kingdom looks like. In 1977, Mother Teresa was given the Nobel Peace Prize. You see, the world is attracted to compassion. It's ingrained in us to look for this type of love in our world and it impacted the world in a powerful way. She ended up founding the Missionaries of Charity with 4,500 nuns in 33 countries as of 2012, and their mission to give wholehearted free service to the poorest of the poor. Is that a life worth living? If you look at the life of Jesus, he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. This is what the compassion of God looks like. Friends, Don't try to crawl out of the womb today, but stay under the sheltering arms of Jesus, that place of his love that will cause you to grow and share that with the world around you. Act with compassion. Become his servants of compassion to a hurting world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that the compassion revealed in Jesus is totally foreign to us. So would you lead us to dwell more completely on your life and to understand it a little bit more deeply and to listen to the prophets and to accept the remedy to amend and to change our ways and to go in a healing path of compassion. Father, would you change our hearts from the inside out? Father, I pray right now, maybe in the silence of of our hearts, you can just impress upon us maybe some practical things that we could do this afternoon, we could do tomorrow that... There's something that you're calling us to do to impact the world around us in a way that will show them how much you love them. Father, we are incredibly weak, and that's why we need to be sheltered under your wings. And Lord, may that recognition of that sheltering love, that 
mother-like love of compassion that will never forget our needs, that's never unmindful of what we have to have in our lives. May it motivate us to live lives of love in your strength for those around us that you have the same concern and care for. Lord, fill us with your compassion and your love. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.